I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter on the upcoming Brazilian presidential election runoff, which is going to take place on October 30th, we have with us CSIS's brand new America's program director, Brian Berg, who is not brand new to CSIS, but he has newly been appointed the head of our America's program. Ryan, so great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Andrew, and thanks for the gracious introduction. Sure. So let's talk about Bolsonaro and Lula. Bolsonaro did much better in the initial first round of the Brazilian election than previously thought. And Lula still maintains a lead in the polls, but this is not a lock that former President Lula is going to retake power in Brazil, is it? No, this election is quite up in the air, and and it took many of us by surprise, although I guess it shouldn't these days, because how many times do we look at each other, Andrew, and say, well, the polls were wrong. It seems to be a pretty common refrain these days in in many different countries. And uh, and elections are having surprises. And Bolsonaro, indeed, he, he outperformed some of the numbers that he had prior to the election. He was polling an aggregate about seven points lower than Lula going into Election Day. In fact, there were some polls rather that had Lula winning the election in the first round, which in order to do, you need to take 50 percent plus one. And so Lula performed under those marks and Bolsonaro about five or six points above where he was predicted to to perform. Now, there are a number of theories about that. Some people think that there is the phenomenon of the shy Bolsonaro supporter, the person who doesn't want to admit that they support the man because of the controversies. There's the idea that there's been some methodological mistakes because Bolsonaro supporters are less likely to be talked to on the street by an in-person polling agency. There's also just the fact that Brazil hasn't had a census since, I believe, 2010. The 2020 census was put off because of the pandemic. So there could be a whole bunch of things going on here about why the polls didn't get it right. But the bottom line is it's a much more competitive race than we anticipated. And Bolsonaro has a path to victory on October 30th in the second round. Just looking at the numbers, Lula garnered 48.4% of the vote. So again, as you pointed out, under 50% automatically triggers a runoff. Bolsonaro had about 43.2% of the vote. What do you think is going to happen in this runoff? And will these candidates accept the results of it? Well, the candidates don't really need any introduction to the voters. They're both well known. One's a former president, one's the incumbent president. And so we don't expect there to be that much new emerging between now and and October 30th. And so it's really going to be both candidates doubling down on what they think their strengths are. And it's going to be a bruising campaign all the way through to October 30th to try to get those votes on the margins. Voting in Brazil is mandatory. And for our listeners who can't see me, I'm doing air quotes right now because by mandatory, there is about a four hay ice fine for not voting, which translates in today's dollar to hell ratio as about less than one dollar fine for not voting. So there are quite a few people who decide to stay on the sidelines pay the fine if it it ever comes to that and not vote. And both are going to have to bring some of those folks off the sidelines, some of the folks who are disgusted by the polarized nature of the election, the disinformation that's in the campaign already, and who these two men are. You have one who's been in power for the last four years, and then you have another who's been associated with pretty massive amounts of corruption in the past and really is only able to run because of a technicality, because he, he got off on a technicality. 
not because there was an actual court case that reversed prior convictions for corruption. Right. I mean, Lula was in jail for a year and a half before the Brazilian Supreme Court, I guess, vacated his sentence. And that's been a heavy focus of the Bolsonaro campaign is reminding voters again and again that Lula is, in fact, a convicted criminal. That was basically the main line of attack at the most recent debates. It was a nasty food fight between these two candidates. And that's why I think Lula is going to stay with his supporters, you know, about 48 percent. Bolsonaro is going to stay with his supporters, about 43 percent. And it's going to be a fight for some of those voices on the margins. People who voted for third candidate in the first round, there were two candidates from other parties who did get some of the vote that would be crucial to getting over 50%. One is called Ciro Gomez, the other is Simone Tebet. They got about 4%, 3%. So those votes that are up for grabs, and then there are the votes of the people who decided to stay home. So Bolsonaro, over the last four years, has famously made himself become known as the Trump of the tropics. And Lula, he's trying to paint as a socialist. Lula is a socialist to some degree, and Bolsonaro is trying to paint him as a radical socialist. What does it mean for Brazil if Bolsonaro gets reelected? And what does it mean for Brazil if Lula comes back to power? One thing I would say before I answer about the two scenarios, Andrew, is while everybody was paying attention to the top line election, which, of course, is the marquee presidential matchup, there were also elections for Congress. There were elections for for senators, for governors and for state legislatures on October 2nd in the first round. Those aren't on the ballot in the runoff. Those have already been decided and they went decisively for Bolsonaro. So even if Lula wins there will be a center-right Congress with which he will have to deal and try to get his legislation through. The message that I also think that it sends is that Bolsonarismo, as the movement is called, is here to stay. Whether he wins or not, the presidency matters less than the fact that there are plenty of those who are willing to mimic his politics and style themselves after him in order to win future elections. And in fact, many candidates who were aligned with him won those down-ballot races on October 2nd. So that's a major trend that I think a lot of people are missing, is that this character of the center-right in Brazil has been changed under Bolsonaro. And one of the consequences, if he wins, will be an even further consolidation of that movement in Brazil, the new face of the right, the new style of the political right in Brazil. If Lula wins, I expect there to be a more regional syncretism with some of the other leftist governments in Latin America. There's an old saying that governments in Latin America can't get along and can't act in concert unless there's ideological alignment. There will certainly be ideological alignment in Latin America if Lula wins. The seven most populous countries in the hemisphere will be governed by leftist governments if Lula wins. And so that's a platform for him. I imagine the Europeans as well will welcome him into their capitals in a way that they haven't really welcomed Bolsonaro. And so Brazil will be more of a presence on the international stage than it is now in a Lula victory. And let's talk about that international stage and and bring it home here to the United States for a second. So what does this Brazilian election mean for the world and for the United States? What are the issues? And I'm assuming the environment is a very, very big one here. 
There are a couple issues that I would highlight. The first is the environment and the Amazon issue. The second is security. I think Brazil plays a very important role in the security of the Western Hemisphere besides Colombia and Mexico. I can't think of another country where the power of criminal organizations is as, as strong and, and as important as it is in Brazil. And of course, that impacts Americans given the illicit economies in which they participate. And the third thing that I would say is food security. Brazil is an agricultural powerhouse, much like the United States, and it has a serious ability to participate or to contribute to global food security if it gets its agricultural policy correct. So there's the environment, there's security, and then there's its contribution to global food security. Those are three key ways in which this election matters to the U.S. And what happens environmentally if Bolsonaro ekes out a victory here? If Bolsonaro returns to power, I I imagine we'll see much of the same that we saw in the first four years of his mandate. A significant portion of his voters are more rural voters who consider themselves part of what Brazilians call the interior zone, the big interior of the country, which is the countryside, the folks who have a different style, a different attitude. And they're cattle ranchers, they're rural dwellers, they participate in agriculture. That's a big part of his base. And part of the deforestation numbers that we've seen in recent years have to do with those folks clearing land for cattle grazing and for other crops. And I imagine that that process would continue. The thing that I would caution, Andrew, is the idea that a Lula victory all of a sudden means better environmental policies for for Brazil. I think it's important to remember that in the first two terms of, of the Lula presidency, 2002 to 2010, We still had high deforestation numbers. We still had deforestation numbers that were alarming, even if the rhetoric wasn't as bombastic as Bolsonaro's. And so, in fact, on the campaign trail, Lula has said multiple times that one of his greatest regrets in his first two mandates was that he didn't do more on the environment. And so I think we should be cautious about assuming that his return to power all of a sudden means an automatic change in Brazil's environmental policies. Ryan, you've said that the Biden administration has made it clear to Brazil that the United States expects a fair, free and clean election and a peaceful transition of power within Brazil if Lula, in fact, wins. It goes without saying that those are important things, but why is it important enough that the Biden administration is weighing in on this election? That's a great question, Andrew. So it goes directly to one of Bolsonaro's main claims in this campaign, which is to undermine the confidence of the Brazilian people in the election system in Brazil. And it's a similar play to what we've seen in the United States. It's a similar set of rhetoric. The difference in Brazil is that Brazil, despite its developing country status, has a remarkable electoral system where a country of around 215 million people will vote on October 2nd, the polls will close around 6 p.m., and by about 9 or 10 p.m., we will have 95 to 99% of the precincts reporting with total accuracy and without any credible claims of fraud. This is the same electoral system that Bolsonaro won in 2018 by 10 million more votes than his nearest opponent. So it is a safe and secure system. In fact, many Brazilians will tell you quite rightly that it's a model for the rest of the region with its electronic voting machines and the way that it counts and the way that precincts report up to a central authority. And then that central authority establishes a certification over the election. 
Nevertheless, I think that this rhetoric has done some damage to the confidence of the Brazilian people in their voting system. And that has caused the United States to remind Brazil several times that it would like to see a clean, fair, free, transparent election. By my count, we've had this conversation with them about five times. The National Security Advisor was down in, in Brasilia, the Senior Director for Western Hemisphere at the National Security Council, Avril Haines, the Director of National Intelligence, Bill Burns, the CIA Director, and also President Biden himself when he had a quick bilateral meeting with Jair Bolsonaro on the sidelines of the Summit of the Americas, reiterated to the President of Brazil that we expect Brazil to have a clean, fair, transparent election, quite frankly, as it always has. What will it look like U.S.-Brazil relations if Bolsonaro wins? What does it mean for the relationship between the United States and Brazil? Well, the United States has, under the Biden administration, kept Brazil, I would consider it at arm's length. The Trump administration, of course, embraced Brazil, the Trump of the tropics. Bolsonaro, of course, took that mantra very happily. Multiple visits to Mar-a-Lago. It was a far closer personal connection between presidents than Biden and Bolsonaro. And so there will be a difficult dynamic there that will continue. The fortunate part about the U.S.-Brazil bilateral relationship is that there's a lot that goes on under the hood. There's a lot that goes on at the institutional level because this is a mature relationship. These are the two largest countries in the Western Hemisphere, and a lot has been institutionalized. There are high-level dialogues for CEOs. There are high-level security dialogues, economic dialogues, cultural exchange dialogues. There are security dialogues. There are a whole bunch of institutional mechanisms in which we can work through those channels and we can avoid any sort of friction in the leader-to-leader relationship. The relationship that exists across Itamarachi, which is the foreign ministry in Brazil, and the State Department is incredibly strong. And that's something that helps fortify the bilateral relationship, irrespective of who the leaders are. The latest polls show, and this is a poll from October 7th, that Lula is leading Bolsonaro with 49% of voter support against Bolsonaro. The incumbent's 44%. Who are Bolsonaro's voters and who are Lula's voters? Both of them have their base, of course. So Lula comes from the famous Workers' Party, which has played a very important role in the history of Brazil. It's one of the oldest parties and has been around really since the start of the return to democracy in 1985 in Brazil. I mean, that's something else we should really point out is that Brazil, people don't really realize this, but it is a young democracy. Indeed, uh, there was a military regime in Brazil from 1965 to 1985, and democracy is still very young. The, The current Brazilian constitution was only written in 1988. So democratic elections, despite the election security mechanisms that I just spoke about, is still pretty young in Brazil. And and that's also what generates some of the concerns around Bolsonaro's rhetoric and his stated claims that the election could potentially be rigged and that he might not leave the Palacio Planalto, which is the presidential palace, on January 1st when it would be his time to leave. Getting back to your question about supporters, you know, Bolsonaro has his supporters as well. These are folks who voted for him in 2018. They wanted a fresh face. There were three uninterrupted mandates of Brazilian Workers' Party rule, and they wanted someone fresh who perhaps wasn't fresh to the political scene in Brazil. Bolsonaro had been a member of Congress since the 1990s, but fresh in the sense that he provided this very fresh perspective on corruption, on the role of the Brazilian state. Some of his plans to scale back state-owned enterprises were really appealing to a lot of the Brazilian people. They were hungry for something new, and Bolsonaro seemed new at the time. 
Lula and the Workers' Party, that was yesterday. Bolsonaro was the thing of today, and he won a resounding victory in 2018. There are still people, millions of people, who are with him all the way. Then there are a number of people who might vote for Bolsonaro because they might not be with him all the way, but they simply cannot find it within themselves to vote for the Workers' Party, given all of the history of corruption that has been uncovered with respect to the Workers' Party in Brazil. And this goes back to a famous anti-corruption probe that started in 2013 called Lava Jato, the car wash scandal, which unveiled untold amounts of corruption within Brazilian society, kickbacks, state-owned enterprises, top companies having separate bank accounts for politicians. And a lot of it was caught up within the Workers' Party because it was the party that was in power at the time. It was the party that had to be bought by special interests. So there are a number of people who just won't pull the trigger for Lula or for a Workers' Party candidate. And in a binary choice, that leaves them with Bolsonaro. Now, whoever wins, they're going to face a lot of really deep challenges right off the bat. And as you said, if Lula wins, he's got basically a gridlock Congress to work with. Why is it a tough time to be in power in Latin America in general? And why is it tough? You've already pointed out some of the reasons why in Brazil. But why is it going to be particularly hard for Lula beyond the governing issue with inflation and other things? He's really facing some pretty steep problems. Well, there are economic challenges in Brazil. Of course, the depths of the the pandemic brought them pretty low and they're still working on recovering. Inflation is at about seven or seven and a half percent in Brazil. It's coming down. Bolsonaro is reminding voters of that. But the economic recovery piece still isn't complete. Lula has a strong record to run on in that sense. The, the period from 2002 to 2010, those were halcyon times in Brazil in the sense that there was a commodity boom within Latin America. China had an insatiable appetite for Latin American commodities. And many people in countries like Brazil, which doubled down on the China relationship, rode that wave into the middle class. They rode that wave into a lifestyle where when I first started traveling the region, I sat next to a number of people who were taking their first flight and they had all these questions to me about what does takeoff feel like and what does landing feel like? These were first time flyers because that was the moment, you know, those were the Lula years when people were doing things that they otherwise wouldn't do because there were 20 or 25 million people who all of a sudden found themselves in the middle class in a country like Brazil. That momentum, that spirit has been present in the Lula campaign. In fact, one of the main slogans of the Lula campaign in Portuguese is Eu estou com saudade de Lula. It's like I'm yearning for the times of Lula. But the macroeconomic dynamics are just not there anymore for Lula to recapture that spirit. The Chinese aren't as interested in commodities anymore. The Brazilian economy is not as dynamic as it was then. There are more global headwinds. The gridlocked element of the Congress is going to pose another challenge. So all of the campaign rhetoric aside, Lula is going to face some serious headwinds even before we start talking about the Congress, which skews towards the Bolsonaro parties, but is also famously gridlocked, even when it's not skewing towards the Bolsonaro parties. Brazil has representation of over 30 parties in its Congress. So putting together a congressional coalition is really a nightmarish scenario and really involves a lot of effort to bring some of the parties to the table to be able to pass legislation. You know, Ryan, we talk a lot about political polarization in the United States. What kind of level of polarization is there in Brazil? I'm glad that you asked this question because I think it mirrors in many ways the United States, but because it's the Portuguese language, 
the social media elements of polarization within Brazil aren't as well fact-checked. They aren't as well monitored as they might be in the English language. And what that means is disinformation and misinformation spreads even faster and spreads deeper than it does in the United States, where you're starting to see a lot of really good organizations pop up that are doing fact-checking work and they can serve as repositories of information in this sense. Brazil's not there yet. There are some organizations that are looking into disinformation and trying to bring down the level of polarization, but it's a difficult task in the Portuguese language. I'll give you a perfect example of this, Andrew. On October 3rd, one day after the first round of the election, there were two stories, one about each of the leading candidates. First, that Lula was a devil worshiper, and the second, that Bolsonaro was a Freemason, which in a majority Catholic country is considered to be a sin. And so the Lula campaign in recent weeks has actually had Lula come out and give a speech called I Am Not a Devil Worshipper, where he's made a promise that he is in fact a Christian, he goes to church, he's not a devil worshiper. And Bolsonaro the same for not being a Freemason. Images of him in Freemason gear have been faked images, doctored images. So that to me tells me that the disinformation is really, really deep. It's on a lot of the WhatsApp channels and it's being furthered by both candidates and some of the groups that follow them, of course, exacerbating polarization. And I would just note that the limit that you and I face in terms of the number of forwards that we can do on our WhatsApp, which I believe is five at a time, actually has its origin in the 2018 election in Brazil, when Bolsonaro groups were forwarding information about the Workers' Party candidate at the time, but they had no limits on how much they could forward it. And so disinformation had just spread like wildfire through WhatsApp, which is pretty ubiquitous in Brazil. And WhatsApp decided to put a limit on the amount of times you could forward a message. That's actually the origin of that rule, Andrew, is polarization and disinformation in Brazil. Well, Ryan, thank you very much for breaking this down for us, and we'll see what happens on October 30th. It's my pleasure, Andrew. Thanks. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 